Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and I think I finally have the sound issue resolved. And, and now, you might be thinking, boy, you know, this is really a an long and ongoing problem and you should just be able to fix it really quick. And I wish um, I would have devoted time to it, you know, weeks back instead of just trying to play with switches and adjust things in GarageBand, uh, it never seemed to work. And that really kind of frustrates me because it should be simple. It should be straightforward, clean cut. Um, I load a new instance and it should just pick up my, my mic and not have any reverb or any echo in it. And no matter how many times I turned off those settings, it always felt like there was still a little bit of a pitch in there. So I hope that this is resolved going forward because, man, it bugs me that you guys get poor quality from the show and that's not my intentions. So thanks for sticking with me, uh, through all of the mess, but, uh, we are going to continue our journey together through the gospel of Matthew this week. We are going to be in the end of chapter 13. Uh, so here's kind of, um, the breakdown. I think we will do, um, up to the end of 13 this week. So there's going to be uh, essentially three uh, three parables, very short ones. Uh, the parable of the, the hidden treasure, parable of the pearl of the great value, parable of the net. And then we're going to have new and old treasures, which is essentially a tie into those three parables. And then we'll finish it off with Jesus being rejected at Nazareth. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. We won't go super, super in-depth, though I do think from 53 to 58, there's a lot of good context and some really neat things in there. We'll try to explore those. Um, and if, you know what? If we get through these three parables and the new and old treasures and, we still, and we're still we running out of time, we'll, we'll parking lot uh, the rejection for next week. Because like I said, I don't want to overload any of the shows with too much content 
and have it drag on for hours and I'm covering, you know, 40 or 50 verses type thing. I mean, this is only 14 verses from verse 44 through 58. So it's not, you know, a huge chunk of text, but there's a lot of material in these few in these few verses. And so I want to take the time and unpack it in a proper manner. So without further ado, here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has ever trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. All right. So that is the parables, the end of the parables, essentially, um, we will come across another one or two, I believe in the rest of Matthew, if I remember correctly, but not too many. Um, this was really a, just a whole chunk of teachings that Jesus gives and they're very interconnected. Um, the, like I said a few times with the sower, the seed and the weeds, those are very much connecting parables, uh, one has like the seed was, you know, the, the current state of somebody sharing the gospel. The weeds is the result or long-term view of that person sharing the gospel. So it's, you know, interconnected in that aspect. These here are interconnected in the retrospective being a little bit of an eschatological parable. And by that, I mean the verse here, 49 that Jesus gives us really has uh, a very particular meaning. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. It's the end of days, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, um, Armageddon, whatever title you want to give it. The end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. So the angels on the last day, they're tasked with taking the evil ones and essentially ushering them into the line of judgment, and then they will be cast into the fiery lake, the lake of fire. So it's a interesting set of parables here because it, what it's doing is it's giving us a few things to consider. First uh, is the, what is this treasure, right? So Jesus is saying in 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's hidden in a field and a man finds it. And upon his joy, he goes out and sells everything he has just to buy the plot of land with that treasure on it. Because to him, that treasure was worth more than all of his life earnings. So that is how we would view the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, this is the gift of salvation that is, uh, it can't be marked with a price. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus knows that. Uh, we cannot fully grasp the eternal weight of 
these gifts that he gives us, the gift of salvation, eternal life, and the resurrected body, we cannot understand the, the even really begin to grasp what those eternal consequences are. What will they look like for eternity? We say that word and we say it's forever and ever. And we say it's a without ending and time doesn't matter. But how in a world that is governed by minutes and seconds and hours and days and months and years, how can we grasp eternity? We know our lives are finite, yet we will walk into an infinite life after this. Kind of a bizarre you know, view, really. And, and again, this is kind of the, the notion that makes Christianity very illogical that our God came down to earth, lived as a man, died for us, and reconciles us to himself and ushers us into eternal life. There's no other religion like that. And the interesting thing here in these parables is the weight placed upon that eternal glory. And seeing as we really can't imagine in our finite minds the depth that the, the eternal weight carries, Jesus assigns it monetary value. And he's, he's trying to you know, bring an analogy. Again, this is a parable. So he's drawing upon this analogy that this great treasure is worth more than all of this man's possessions. So for each person... The gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the gift of uh, eternal life, all these things, they are worth more than everything in this life we can possibly imagine. Not to say that the things in this life are necessarily bad because they all have a function and they all have a means, they all have a, you know, a need to fulfill certain things. And so they have the, you know, they, they all have a filling, if you would. But what we're getting to is, is they pale in comparison to the value of the kingdom of heaven. Just imagine being an adult, going your whole life without hearing the gospel, and then somebody shares the gospel with you, and, and it just blows your mind, and you instantly are just saturated with faith, and, and this is the greatest thing you've ever had spoken to you. So if that's the greatest thing ever given to you, that obviously outweighs all of your possessions. It doesn't, again, it's not a parable that says you have to go and sell all of your possessions in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not what this is saying. But Jesus is giving us this comparison. And he does so again here in the in the pearl that he goes and sells all that he has and he buys this one pearl because this one pearl is, is the finest pearl he's ever seen. It is a perfect finding there's nothing like it. And so he sells everything he has and buys that one pearl because it's worth more to him than anything else. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is worth more than anything we can possibly grasp in this life and what we could even try to begin to describe in this life. It is worth more than all of that. And sometimes to just sit and ponder on the eternal weight that Christ is freely giving to us, that to me just blows my mind because we come across a text like this and it really is one of those like uh, paradigm shaking texts because we see and understand that the value placed upon finding the kingdom of heaven is worth more than everything in this life. Now with these two parables, before we get to the parable of the net, I want to make another um, statement. I want to look at it from a very different perspective here. 
I've also seen other preachers in their commentaries and notes um, present it in a different fashion. It's both and, and I think this is really kind of a neat way to look at it. So on one hand, we have this is the individual finding the kingdom of heaven. This is the individual coming to the gospel, being told the gospel and, and coming to faith. The other end of it is that this is like Jesus Christ finding us, seeking us out. And because we, to him, are worth more than everything, he gives up his life for us, which is all that he has. And he buys us. Now, we can get into all the atonement theories and all that stuff, whatever. I'm not going to get into it today. But what I'm getting at is there's an, there is there is another way to look at it and that it, it is Christ seeking us out. We are the great treasure. We are that fine pearl. I, I came across a handful of commentaries on that, and I thought it was fascinating. I, I don't know if I can fully be on board with all of it, but I believe that it is a new way to look at the passage. At least for me, I've read this, you know, a ton of times and I never considered it from that perspective that we would be like that great treasure that Christ came and found us and brought us home. We were the lost sheep. We were the ones who've wandered away from the flock. And this is a great illustration to showing uh, the value that Christ has given up for us. So a very interesting and unique way to consider those two parables. So now we get into the parable of the net and Jesus again is comparing the kingdom of heaven here, but it's like a a net that's thrown out into the sea and it gathers fishes of every kind. So uh, very, very similar to the sower of the seed. We go out and we sow the seed and it falls across the different uh, types of soil. In this case, the kingdom of heaven being the gospel being cast out into the world and it's gathering all of these different people. And so you will get people who, you know, as we talked in the previous two, who will be uh, like weeds or who will be um, a, a, you know, spark or something and shoot out really quick. And then as persecution and tribulation come, they fall away from the gospel. And we talked about that in the sower of the seed pretty extensively. So you will see every kind of person come, come into, you know, into the nets, essentially into the fold of Christianity. You'll see all these different kinds, all these different peoples and the angels, their job, just as it was with the sower of the weeds, their job is to go and sort out the bad fish. They are to sort out the weeds and it is their duty to separate both of those things. So now we can get into conversation on eschatology if you want. Uh, But very briefly, I find that this uh, instance really is not necessarily about all of the events that unfold up to that moment, but it really just is talking about on the day of the Lord, at the end of the age, when everything is done, whether you are pre, post, or amillennial, whatever position you hold, the the text is extraordinarily clear here in this parable, and this echoes what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 and 25, that the uh, skies will shatter open. You'll see Jesus returning with a loud trumpet blast. The angels will be sent to the four corners of the earth to gather all of the believers and unbelievers, and they will all face judgment. The unbelievers in one line, the, sh- the goats, the believers in another line, the sheep, the unbelievers will be ushered into the lake of fire and the believers will be ushered into the new heavens and new earth. 
very, very straightforward text. And, you know, what we talked about when we um, went through that whole series on eschatology a couple of years ago being, you know, a revealed eschatology, this is, there's no mysteries being presented here. There's no uh, mysterious week of Daniel or there's no secret rapture, none of that kind of weird theology that's relatively new in the scope of uh, Christian doctrine. We didn't get into any of that. I mean, we talked about him on the particular episodes, but we didn't utilize the scripture to present those views. We re- we used scripture in its basic understanding and clear iteration that this is what the text says. And we, we come to parables and we read them in a parable and we read them in that fashion. We read them in the understanding that they are a an analogy. They're describing something and presenting the kingdom of heaven and and essentially in a watered down version so we can begin to think about the understanding of it. When we get to uh, apocalyptic literature, whether it's Daniel, Ezekiel, Matthew 24, 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, Revelations, um, any of Paul's writings that deal with uh, being caught up, I think it's first or second Thessalonians that he talks about that. Uh, Peter even has a few points. Jude has a few points on it. Um, I mean, it's just, it's scattered all throughout scripture. But anytime we get to apocalyptic literature, we, we read it in a, um, in a very different manner than we would a literal text. So the gospels can be read in a literal text manner because what you're getting is a historical capturing of the life and ministry of Jesus. However, you have to understand when you get to, you know, passages like chapter 13 here in Matthew with the parables that Jesus is teaching in these in an allegorical fashion. So you have to differentiate between a literal interpretation because the kingdom of heaven is not a net being thrown into the sea to catch fish. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying it is like. So that word is extraordinarily important in this what also pretty much trumps the black uh, Hebrew movement uh, when they say that Jesus is a black man and he's got, you know, white, uh, fiery white hair. And then you'd have to take all of that into consideration and say that he does have feet that are made out of bronze and he's got fire in his eyes or eyes of fire and swords literally coming out of his mouth. I mean, if you take those texts as a literal interpretation, you're going to run into some, some big, big issues if you read them in the manner that John and Matthew and others wrote it in, where he uses the word like to describe it, it becomes a little easier to handle. And like I said, we're not going to have the full perfect picture of eschatology. I think the revealed eschatological viewing, the A-mill position, is probably the most biblically sound position that I've come across in my journey. Uh, but I would never say that I'm ever an expert on the end of times, and I don't think anybody is. People can be gro- people can be good at their own views and be able to reiterate them and and defend them, but we are no experts on um, eschatology because we just don't have the foresight to see. We can we can talk about creation all day long because we have Genesis one, two, and three. We could talk about you know all these different types of doctrines because they're laid out throughout the scriptures, but eschatology is one of those that's harder to come by and, and it's only in certain places and it's really a scattering of, you know, 
the, how they're addressing the end of times. And so you also have to understand too, the use of the day of the Lord. We had a whole episode dedicated to it, but the use of the day of the Lord in the old Testament is a little different than what it is in the new Testament. So there's, you know, there's weights that must be placed upon these passages. And like I said, I think the a mill position really uh, answers those questions the best. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, a great way to interpret these passages is through that particular lens. So all of that to say, we will be uh, handling the passage in that fashion today. And as well, when we get to Matthew 24 and 25, we'll be talking about it in a literal uh, sense, unless Jesus uses some sort of descriptive narrative for it. And here, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It is like a merchant finding a fine pearl. It is like the net being thrown into the sea. And all of that to say that they that the kingdom of heaven has significant weight, significant value. And at the end of the age, the day of the Lord, the great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord, we will have the angels go out and separate the evil from the righteous and the evil will be thrown into a fiery place. And the same thing can be said about the master of the house. He brings out his new treasures of what is new and what is old. And this is an interesting passage in of itself because it's why would you as a master of the house bring out treasures that are new and old? Um, This can be fresh uh, food items and even aged ones such as cheese and wine. Uh, It could be things, even old treasures are still valuable. So the master of the house is bringing out a, a smorgasbord of treasures, right? Uh, and in, in this case, the notes that I have pointed towards like using food as an example. Um, so fresh food items can be the new treasure and aged and good foods there can be used as the old treasure, such as like cheese and wine, because you want cheese and you want wine to be properly aged. Uh, if you're a bourbon drinker, I'm sure you age your bourbons. Uh, whiskey, same thing. If you And I'm not a big drinker, so I don't really know the difference if there is anything. So, you know, that shows my ignorance on it. Uh, I'll have a nice glass of wine once a week with my wife, and that's it. That's all I do outside of communion. When I have a nice little shot, <laughs> that's all I get. So, uh, But it's interesting, right? So we have that considerable weight placed upon the kingdom of heaven and its value here. So those are the parables. That's going to conclude the, the, the section here in chapter 13, but let's finish off these last few verses. Uh, we've got about nine minutes left. I think that's an appropriate amount of time here. Um, and then we'll conclude chapter 13 today. Verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said to him, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty words, uh, in these mighty works? Is not the carpenter's son, is not his mother called Mary? And are we, and are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where did where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense to him. But Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And they did not do, and he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. All right. So very simple a conclusion here to chapter 13. Jesus goes out of that area. He goes away. He goes back to his hometown. 
Uh, this would be uh, Capernaum, where he goes back to that's kind of just a, a, a probably type assumption. There's not a lot of concrete evidence, but we know that his hometown is Nazareth. And so he's probably in, you know, in that vicinity in a synagogue, whether it's in Nazareth or in the, you know, maybe just outside of town or whatever, but he's there and he's in his hometown and he is preaching the same parables that he just got done preaching. Right. Cause it says uh, that he taught them all in their synagogues. And so he's probably bringing parables into the situation. He's answering questions, maybe even fulfilling, you know, certain prophetic readings and the crowd is astonished by this. And because they're asking, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not a, the carpenter's son? So referring to Joseph is not his mother called Mary. So they're really trying to say, how can this man be divine when he has uh, earthly parents? How can this man be the son of God? If we know, and this is from their eyes, that we know that he's uh, nothing more than a carpenter's son and the son of Mary. So they're trying to degrade the, 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 the significance of Jesus's preaching because they can't understand it. Now, remember all the way back to the parables of the, uh, being explained, we talked about how Jesus will teach in parables and it will often confuse the people who it was not meant to bring faith to, but for the disciples, as they answered him back in verse 51 and 52, yes, they understand it. They understand these parables. They may not like be able to grasp all of it entirely, but they can understand it. And they say, okay, that makes sense. It's still a little weird, but it makes sense. And, and I can only imagine the disciples and uh, in, in hearing this profound teaching and the same thing with the people in Nazareth, they're, they're hearing this teaching probably for the first time, or maybe just a few times that they've heard it. And it's just blowing their minds, how deep this man's wisdom is. And so they're, they're astonished. And then they try to, you know, justify it by saying, well, isn't he just a man like us? Where did he get all this stuff? Where did he learn this stuff? Maybe he might be a prophet. Maybe he might be something significant. But if he's the son of God, how does he have earthly parents? And so that's kind of an interesting, you know, view, in my opinion, about that text. Now, uh, they go on to kind of grumble amongst themselves, are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, right? So he's equating some of these disciples as his brothers and not his sisters with us. And so uh, there's... There's the whole debate within the, the the Roman Catholic and Catholic world and the Protestant world uh, around the condition of Mary's virginity after the birth of Jesus. Did she uh, procreate with Joseph and have children afterwards? The Roman Catholic position on it is that Mary remained the Immaculate Virgin through her life. She bore no children other than than Christ. And the text here does not give us enough evidence to say that these individuals labeled are descendants of Joseph and Mary. The text just doesn't give us enough information one way or the other. Now, if we take those names, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and we could fill in the gaps of possibly some of his disciples and apostles that traveled with him, right? Is it talking about Judas Iscariot? Is it talking about Simon who now will be called Peter? 
So, and, and James, the brother of Jesus, right? So brothers often a term associated with close friendship and bonding of male. And so there's the, the understanding that there's just not enough evidence. And so I can't really hold a position e- either way, whether she was an, you know, remained immaculate virgin or not. And, and it doesn't honestly, in my theological perspective, it doesn't honestly matter um, because I'm not praying to Mary and I'm not have, asking Mary to intercede for us. Uh, I, I don't do those things. And I know I've got a couple Catholic friends that listen to this show. Uh, you know who you are, by the way. And we'll have a discussion because I'm sure you'll probably chime in and, into our group chat and, and, and talk to me about Mary. Totally cool with it. Uh, I just personally see her. I see her in her position as being the mother of God. And, and I think that is a, a well-placed position for her, but I don't see her being elevated to being any more than, uh, than that. Now, the argument I would say is, is I'm not praying to Mary to intercede for us on our behalf because she's dead and in eternal heaven with Christ. I would ask my friends to intercede or pray for me and to go to God on my behalf and to pray for me and help me through these things, that is perfectly fine because they're alive and they have the ability to pray. Uh, I think Mary's too busy caught up in all the wonderful things in heaven and she probably just frankly doesn't care. That's my view and I'm sticking to it. So that's that. So anyways, so Jesus doesn't, in the text here, before we get to Jesus, the, the text doesn't tell us enough about whether he had brothers and sisters. It just simply states, aren't these people with us? Well, you know, brothers and sisters are often equated to uh, relationships too. They're not just blood siblings. They are, you know, like I've got, um, you know, Anthony, I would consider him a brother. Uh, I've got Chris, I'd consider a brother. Jacob, I consider a brother. And you guys know who you are. So if you listen to this show, I love you guys. Those are my brothers. And, but they're not my siblings and they're not blood related, but I know them and I care for them and I respect them. And they, you know, they have been with me through, through the trenches. So they are my brothers. And, and I would assert that this is how James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas are being equated to Jesus here. They are people who traveled with Jesus and are companions and close friends with Christ. So he concludes this section here and he says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So the people are rightfully skeptical on on this whole debate with Jesus here. And and really it's because of their prior acquaintance with him and his family. So they they witnessed him growing up and they're making it, you know, a little bit like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" And so the household that uh, we're seeing here like I said, can really be based upon close friendships, familiarity. Jesus is saying that a prophet is more honored away from his home than by his own native town and family. And Jesus's family has made a similar mistake in Mark, the third chapter, verse 21. So Jesus basically states, I understand that I'm not going to have honor here. And... It's just that when I'm over there outside of this town, when people don't know me or don't have an association with me, they will honor me more. And so the people in his hometown are basically just chalking it up saying, we watched this little boy grow up from an infant and now he's preaching to us about the wonders of the kingdom of God. How can this possibly be? And so they are perplexed and skeptical 
at what Jesus is saying. And that is why he gives you that little nugget there at the end of chapter 13. So we'll conclude with that. I think that uh, wraps up this text um, fairly well. I mean, the last verse basically is straightforward and saying he didn't do any mighty works because they didn't believe. They're skeptical. So Jesus moves on. Uh, Chapter 14 kicks off next week. We will look at the death of John the Baptist and maybe, if we have time, the feeding of the 5,000. So I just got done preaching a sermon on that a couple weeks ago. Uh, Last week we preached on walking on water. Uh, So my sermons and the podcast are pretty close in terms of where I'm preaching and what I'm doing on the podcast. So if you want to hear the preaching side of that, you can check out uh, check out the uh, sermons on YouTube. You can go to our Facebook page and hit the link there. Uh, it's Stratford Lutheran, uh, Stratford EV Lutheran LCMC, I should say. If you have or need a link to it, DM me and I'll and I'll hit you up with the link. So if you want to watch, them, I don't know, you know, it's up to you. Anyways, thanks for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad the sound sounds better. I've replayed myself a few times during this episode just to make sure because I'm all like, uh, really want this to sound good because I know you guys enjoy the show. I hope you guys enjoy the show. I mean, it's, that's why I do it. If I didn't know you guys enjoyed the show, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't waste my time doing it, but this isn't a waste of time. It is a it is a gift that I have had the privilege of being able to pour back into you, and and I've done so for many years now, and I can hope and pray to do so for the years to come. So thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. It is Friday when the show drops, so make sure you get your butt into church on Sunday, and I pray you can partake in the sacraments. In fact, um, I have... Uh, some some really cool baptisms coming up here for some younger, uh, not quite teenage uh, old girls. So I'm looking forward to baptizing a few um, young girls. And then uh, we've got communion in a couple weeks at our church. Unfortunately, we only do it once a month or twice a month. I'd love to do it every week. But uh, that would be <laughs> that would be a challenge. My church is just not used to that yet. But anyways, anywho, I'm babbling. Get on with your other day's stuff and get back to work, whatever you're doing, tune into another show. I don't know. I hope you guys have a great week. I'm just mumbling on now. So we'll see you later. God bless. Have a great week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.